It's a continual losing of things. When Ferg calls you, it's like a call to arms. What I really want is for him to put this record out while he's still alive. It helps to have a bit of madness in you. I love you. He's hungry for life. I can't play the instruments anymore, so instead of playing instruments, I have to play people. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, filmmakers. I hope you're doing well out there. Um, welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat. This is a very special one. Um, this is with the filmmaker Michael McCormick, um, who made the film Breaking Out. We actually recorded this interview um, around this time last year when it was originally supposed to be released and then unfortunately because of lockdown uh, they held off until this week and it is now finally in cinemas um we got to hear the whole story of this uh, kind of unlikely film almost this unlikely story of fergus um an incredible musician and an incredible spirit um, who died at the age of only 48, I believe, um, in 2016, um, and the, the lead singer of Interference. So we, you know, we know documentaries can take a long time, um, but Michael McCormick was making this for 10 years and following the story of Fergus and his illness, his struggle with muscular dystrophy, um, you know, a man who was told he would only live until he was 18. Um, and yeah, it went back further than that. Michael was following this band since the eighties as a fan. Um, it's, a and there was just so many twists and turns in the story and, um, to see uh, Fergus kind of <laughs> find fame after many years of kind of obscurity uh, with the success of Once and to see him kind of reborn and <laughs> it's just uh, uh, it's a film that sounds like it could be kind of grim and sad and depressing but it's not it's extremely joyous so if you can get out there and see it or rent it online do so it is released uh, by element distribution um you will find it where you find anything good um and uh it was a brilliant chat with michael uh i mean talk about perseverance and um to go you know to go through this journey and to be you know so close with the subject um you know it's uh it it's it's a, it's a heartbreaking story, but also, you know, quite uplifting. Um, so even just the story behind the making of it. Um, so we hope you enjoy this one. This is Michael McCormick. I watched the film last night. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's quite emotional. I, I it was, it's such a journey. Um, I, I was kind of aware of Fergus's story. I knew some of his music, um, 
going way back and I, I'd kind of been aware of the film. So I'm really excited to kind of get stuck in into the journey. Um, but just for our listeners, just to get a bit of background to yourself, um, I believe this is your first film. So maybe you could just give us a bit, bit of background to how you ended up coming to this project. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's good talking to you. Um, uh, and I have to go way back. But, but So cut in at any stage uh, because this could go on. Okay. So basically, basically, I'm uh, like most people. And when I was a teenager, I was bonkers about uh, music and I ended up trying to help out at gigs as much as I could. And in 1987, I think it was, or it might have been 86, there was uh, a, a charity concert called Self-Aid. And uh, it was a massive concert uh, for the unemployed in Ireland. It was a bit odd, but a lot of gigs happened all over the country um, as part of that. And at one of these, at, a, at age 15, I was doing backline, and all these bands from around Ireland were playing. And the majority of them weren't really doing that for me, to be honest. And then this band came on stage, and this guy started singing, and they looked far more confident and sure of themselves than I'd seen in an Irish band before. And I was completely hooked from that moment. So when he came off stage and got into a wheelchair, I went over and sat down and, and you know, chewed the ear off him. And that was Fergus O'Farrell. And I went along to loads of gigs after that and became a huge fan and could see around me at all these gigs that uh, all the great and good of the up-and-coming music scene in Dublin at the time, the Frames, the Mary Janes, Keela, Mundy, all these artists were uh, all going along to see Interference because we all knew that this was something special. So when they broke up, it, it kind of you know affected everybody. And when they got back together again in the 2000s, I ended up going along to see them again and uh, one of the members of the band came up and said, knew what I was doing, knew that I was making uh, documentaries and said to me, would you ever think of making one about him? And I kind of thought at the time, you know, music documentaries and music in general wasn't getting as much support as it used to. And I thought, is there an audience for it? It's a very niche audience because Interference were a very niche cult band. And then I went down and spent a weekend with Fergus Fergus and Skull, and I just put a camera on him for the weekend, and he never shut up. And by the end of the weekend, I went away realizing that it was a much bigger story, and that it was it was you know going to be an amazing story to tell, and that it was well worth getting stuck in. So I made all the big mistakes that filmmakers make because I got stuck in straight away, started filming myself. And without a budget, and then started trying to raise awareness about that through Film Ireland, uh, through, and you know, but I never stopped filming. So I ended up filming for over 10 years. And uh, so I saw a hell of a lot of the highs and lows of Fergus's life, but I kind of always knew that if if I could get to the stage where I could raise the right budget that I could tell the story the way it needed to be told. And I actually always thought that that would be when Fergus was still around. But uh, 
I've since learned when he when he passed away that he had no intention of letting me uh, finish it uh, on, until he brought me all the way. But so so yeah, so it took it took a long time to make this film, but uh, eventually I was able to make it the way that it needed to be uh, made because his life was a bit unbelievable. It it was like a it was like a fairy tale, and on paper it was hard to sell because it sounded like it could be quite a, a downbeat, depressing story, but I hope you agree it's far from that. It's an uplifting story about an incredible life. Absolutely. Um, and it, it really makes the film, you know, that, that it is such a long journey and it, it feels like, you know, you can kind of feel that you can kind of feel what it must have been like almost going along on that journey. And when, when it takes these kind of highs and lows and turns, and it really does feel like, uh, you know, you kind of think it's going to be something, um, but it's so much more. It's, it's really special. I, I guess maybe just you, you summed up kind of their, the, the musical contribution of interference there. They really were something quite special coming out of a time when, you know, everyone was looking for that next U2 or whatever, and you kind of, you, you capture something in the film of the, you know, what it's like to be in a band and the, the, the highs and lows. Was that kind of a conscious thing to kind of get into that world a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, when, when you're making a, a, when you're telling a story like this, you're really trying to, to, make it evocative and for people, not only those who were there, but even more importantly for those who weren't there. So one of the great things for me was that Fergus, when he moved up to Dublin to try and become a, you know, a musician and, and start a band and, and make it, he moved into this factory in the middle of Dublin in, near Christchurch. And, uh, he, you know, it's talked about in the film that people would kind of, gravitate to this factory, different bands, and that uh, I think it was Maria Doyle Kennedy says, you know, a place for bewildered musicians, which is what it was, because I remember it myself. But I wanted to get back in there. Unfortunately, that building is is situated in Dublin beside the Ivy Market, and uh, it's called Winstanley. It used to be an old shoe factory, and it has been uh, sitting there idle for quite a long time. And so it's a it's a shadow of the building it was at the time, because the building that Fergus and his musician friends lived in and rehearsed in turned into a, a pub called Mother Redcaps, which was not only a great pub, but a great venue for a good, a good few years before it shut down. So as I said, now it's sitting there idle. So once I decided that I had to get back in there, no matter what state I was in, and do the interviews with the band members in there, many of whom hadn't been back since they had lived there. I knew that it would bring an extra level to, to their experience and the way in which they would tell the story. And, it, you know, it, it kind of helps to bring people back there, not just even though the place doesn't exist in the way it was, it helps to bring people back to, to where it was all happening. Yeah, you definitely get that sense. And it was great you, you kind of set it up very well with the other some of the other bands i mean there were so many great bands at that time but 
the the churn of the how the record company business works you kind of see the victims there of that um when it comes to your own background uh before the project what what kind of experience had you had before working on this film so my my background is totally in broadcast television so i would have started out uh freelancing um uh, working for different independent companies and then I started to to work with RTE so I have worked uh, in all strands of uh, of uh, making broadcast TV I've made numerous documentaries of all lengths I've worked in entertainment I've worked in in loads of different areas so much so that for years I was kind of, my, my heart and soul was in documentary making and uh, for years I used to get frustrated when I wasn't able to to get stuck into that. And then I realised that actually, apart from being a, a director and a producer, that what, what, you're, what you're trying to do is, is tell stories and tell them as well as possible. And I'd kind of learned how to tell stories in all different formats um, and all different lengths so that when... Well, it's not often that you come across a project that you know straight away that it has featured documentary potential. And as I said, I wasn't sure that this had until I sat down talking to Fergus. So, um, so yeah, I knew it was a feature doc from the moment I got stuck into it. And I was probably naive enough to think that I knew how to, how to make a feature doc. But, of course... The, what, what, you know, I went about it, about it the wrong way, but there was no other way to do it because when you're somebody who hasn't got any um, background in that and this is going to be your first film, it's very hard for people to back that. And then you're also asking them to come on a journey with somebody that basically doesn't look like it has any end in which your treatment is going to include reconstructions uh, with Oscar-winning actors and animation, uh, you know, it was a hard sell for a lot of people when I'd go into a room. Um, and it really, it was only when I, you know, got it finished that I was able to say that, you know, what I had on paper and what I was trying to sell, that it had actually worked. Because I'm, I'm sure it's the same for every filmmaker out there, particularly when you're on a, a long journey like this, you're so many times I said to myself, Jesus, have I got this all wrong? Have I, you know, is this what I think it is? Is it just a small little story? And have I just built this up in my own head? But luckily, luckily, I kept reminding myself that, um, that no, you don't come across stories like this every day of the week, that there was a reason to keep going. And, um, and my only regret is that Fergus. Fergus isn't here to see it because I know he'd be he'd be kind of tickled pink that it's the film that I talked to him about over those years because he knew every bit of it. He knew how I was I was going to approach things. He knew how I was going to tell the story. So he'd got a great kick out of the fact that uh, you know Jeremy Irons is uh, is leaning down talking to him in a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, that was going to be my next question just about <laughs> his, his well his his Ferguson's involvement in in the filmmaking so he he obviously understood you know what you were making it wasn't 
just oh yeah it'd be good to have a camera around kind of thing yeah, Effort, pr- yeah. pretty much I mean in, in that he we kind of had a we had it set up from the, from the early days that I was going to be on a journey I was going to be there for the high moments and the low moments that as much as possible he was to ignore that I was ever there we and, and you know actually the difficult periods of filming were when he didn't do that when he became too familiar with me and with the camera he started talking to me and I, I, I you know we had loads of rows over the years about it because I said that's that doesn't work for me I said I, I you know I'm not interested in me being you know in conversation with you here it's it has to be about me just observing and following your story so you know that we we had plenty of arguments about that and he would ask me you know when i would tell him that when i would ask him to tell me a certain story more than once i would often tell him to tell me a story again and again until i got him to tell it to me the way he did when the camera wasn't on um, and i would explain to him this is a pivotal story in the film because it says everything about you as a person and i would like to make a reconstruction about this and this is another great story. The story about himself and his wife meeting. I said, this is how I want to make, you know, realize this on screen. So he always knew uh, where I was going with things. Um, but essentially, the most important thing for me was to, to, to create that, you know, gap between the two of us as well when the filming was happening. Because otherwise it would have been, it would have been a different film. And in terms of that's such a, a constant challenge for filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, to you know to make to get things natural. Uh, is there any, was there any big lessons from that? Because you a lot of interviews in here um, that you brought in that you'd bring into your next film, or that you know those kind of skills of how to actually get those natural interviews. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, the funny, the funny thing is, Paul, you know, there are so many films that say they, they're shot over a period of time, and, and, and in the, essentially they're not. Yeah. <laughs> they're not as immersive as, as, you know, it is quite unusual to, to be talking about um, breaking out and about a film like this, and 100%, this was this was total immersion because a lot of the time I would get on the road and go down to West Cork and I would arrive then and there might be something going on that you know he felt was worth being there for for filming and I would know straight away no it's you know it's not it's right. not worth filming but I would be there to work on the relationship and that's kind of the thing that you know, to take from this more than anything else, that there were so many occasions when I would go down and I'd come away from it knowing that none of the footage would be used and I'd be frustrated. And now looking back on it, I say to myself, actually, all those times were so important because I think for a documentary maker, the number one thing, I think everybody who makes documentaries will know this, is the relationship you have with the main character and the people that you're, you're filming, that they know they can trust you and that they know that, you're, you're, that your intention is, is the right one and that they don't have to be concerned. Because let's face it, how many of us would be happy to be you know, followed around with a camera? I certainly wouldn't be. 
So when you're going to give somebody the right to do that, you have to trust them. So that's the first, that's the thing that it would take forward from it is how important it is to never forget to get that trust and to to maintain it over the course of of any any approach that you're taking to a film. Yeah, you definitely get that sense that you know you almost feel like you're a part of the family. You're in quite intimate. Um, uh, setups there, you know, and situations, and with the family, and and uh, you know, Fergus is at his most vulnerable. It, it's really a testament to the time that you put in there. Um, was there ever times where you were like, I'm not sure if I should be here? Oh God, yeah, yeah. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean, but there's a lot of footage that isn't in the film that, uh, that I, that I knew when I came back and looked at the footage, I said, that's not going to be in the film because it became, there were moments of intimacy that I, you know, I wasn't comfortable with. Um, Fergus had opened up completely to me and wanted me to be, uh, there for everything. There was a good period of time, um, when in his life, when he, wanted to keep the muscular dystrophy at a certain distance because it it didn't define him. You know, anyone who knew him, it, you know, you could spend years in his company and never think about the suffering he was going through because it did define him and he didn't allow it to. But towards the last couple of years, he really wanted me to show how difficult it had become because it wasn't something he shared with too many people, but he you know, when people wondered had he become a recluse, he, you know, he wanted to be able to show people, actually, I'd be out there playing all the time. I'd be out there touring if I could. It's just that this booking disease has now taken hold of me. Mm-hmm. So there was never, there are stages, you know, there are, there are scenes in the film that are there because they feel right and they're not easy, and they're not, they're tough, but um, but he he want you know there was an awful lot more that didn't make it, and I'm I'm very happy with the the stuff that was used in the film, and I'm very happy that he would be as well. Hello, filmmakers, um, just a few updates for FNI, um, so there is the course with you and Bremer coming up coming up, and. Paul actually did a an episode of FNI Rap Chat with Ewan, so that will be coming to your ears very soon as well. Um, lots of talk of uh, Storyland. The deadline is coming uh, quite soon. It is the 12th of December. Um, it's a it's an incredible opportunity. Um, they are really kind of supersizing Storyland. Um, it's, it doesn't look like what it has been. Over the years, it, it's grown a lot uh, and had many different variations and different incarnations over the years. But it seems that this one, you know, they're they're putting a lot more money into it and a lot more uh, development. And it seems like this is going to be the way that RT uh, find talent and uh, develop projects um, that will, you know, that hopefully will have a life after Storyland. Um, so check that out um, the, on the RT, RT website, Storyland. Um, 
there is, you know, it's not a huge application, which is good. Um, so if you have something, you just need, you know, you need to get a producer on board and you need to get uh, a good pitch and uh, a couple of strong scenes and get it in there. And best of luck with it. Let's go back to Michael McCormick. Just on the, the different techniques, because it's, it's you, you utilize, you know, you've got Jeremy Irons in there, you've got a bit of an animation, um, and it really, you know, makes the, the, the viewing experience so enjoyable. Were they tricky? Because often I know how it is hard to make those things work tonally. Often they're great on paper. Um, what was the challenge, challenge there for you like? Well, the main, the main challenge, Paul, is that every room I went into and told the people that I was, wanted to do that, particularly those two things, <laughs> I, would, I would get these kind of looks. Uh, you know, these are people I was trying to, to get on board in, in funding and, and supporting yeah. the film. And, I know those looks very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I understand it completely because, you yeah, know, there was yeah. a period of time there where with documentary making, it seemed that animation was being utilized too much. It seemed that reconstruction is a scary one anyway, because when it's done wrong, it can, you know, it can be really tragic. Yeah, and yeah. I think we've all been there. I, I mean, I've, I've approached it before and it hasn't worked as well. So on this occasion, I, you know, I just knew that to- tonally it was going to work because I was trying the reason for using animation and using reconstruction wasn't really because it wasn't really because of the treatment of the film. It was because I was trying to get Fergus's personality across, and Fergus was uh, full of fun and full of divilment. And I spent most of my time laughing with him, like he was a really funny fecker. So yeah. I wanted to get that across. And you know, when he told me the story about meeting his wife for the first time, you know, I was crying with laughter. So immediately I said, how do I get back there? How do I show this story visually? And there there was only one way as far as I was concerned, because, um, because you could, I I just saw 2D animation and I said, okay. And again, as you'll notice, the minute I went to animators and said, I want to do 2D animation, they were going, are you serious? Are you sure? Like, you know, they, yeah. we can do this. You know, there was a lot more 3D and beautiful 3D work going on. Yeah. But I was yeah. going, no, it needs to be naive. It needs yeah. to be cartoonish. It needs to be cartoonish. It has to go, go with the humor. It has to. It was important to have those moments in the film where you gave people a break from what are, were some harder, harder moments. Yeah. So that because yeah. that was the way Ferg did it, he would make you. He, he had most of the people around him laughing, so you forgot what he was going through. So it was important to get that into the film as well. And he also had a way of talking about his life as if it was a fairy tale. So it was important that the reconstruction played like one. Like, you're not sure what the hell is really going on or what's happening or what is being said. And that you interpret it in whatever way you like. The most important thing for me was that that they place at a point in the film that brings you somewhere else. And that, you know, all our favourite films, all my favourite films, I walk out of the cinema and I think about them for a week. And I think about 
aspects of them and what what the filmmaker was trying to say. And I'd hope that, that that's what you get out of this because he wasn't uh, he wasn't straightforward, but he was he was a little bit larger than life, and that's why the film had to be the way it is. Yeah, I mean it's it's totally warts and all, and it's very very human. Um, you were there; you get the sense that you were there so much, and with these kind of films as direct documentary directors, we might have a small team, but. It's a lot of the time. It's just you, or may, and maybe one other person. Well, how how do you get through those moments where it's you know you just feel like you're carrying it all yourself? Did you just were you just you knew you you had a vision and stuck to it, or how did you get through through that side of things? Um, I wouldn't. I w- I definitely wouldn't. Uh, you know, when that question is asked, I definitely wouldn't make films this way. Uh, but then at the same time, the biggest problem with making a film like this, if you do end, end up in situations where it's you and a camera uh, and that's it, and yeah. you're doing, you're filming and you're, you're having to keep an eye on everything that's going on, you're keeping an eye, an eye on the audio, you're making sure that you're not getting in the way of what's going on. Yeah. So you've no backup. You're dead right. It's 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 uh, it's it can be terrifying, but it can be very very freeing as well because the people around you, particularly, there are moments uh, when you're traveling with people or you're there in a room, and because it's only you, people don't really pay you much heed, um, and that's the most important thing that you blend into the background. When it got to those moments where there was two cameras there. That, again, is the challenge, to blend into the background. And, you know, you can still have the banter with people as the time goes on, but you're having that banter to, you know, become familiar with them and for them to just, you know, see you as part of what's going on. Um, but putting the, when, when documentary makers... Uh, I, th- I think... You know, it's good to have a structure around around you and a team around you making a documentary. It's very, very tough doing it uh, on your own. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I, at the same time, Paul, you know, would I have the same film? Prob- well, definitely not. Yeah, yeah. You definitely get that sense. Um, and, like, but... You were there for those moments, you know, like, actually, what stage in the story did you actually come, like, had it once come out, or were you seeing all that happen as it happened? No, I kind of got, in, got involved just, just after um, Interference got back together, and they had done other voices, so it was before, it was before the film, um, so it was before the whole once thing happened. Um, yeah. So I, actually, so funnily enough, it could have become a bigger thing, but as you can imagine, you know, during the course of an edit, there are many different ways you could go, and the once thing could have become a lot bigger. But actually, you know, it suddenly didn't become as big because for him, he turned up and did a scene uh, for a film called Once. He says it in the in the, in the film in Breaking Out. He says, 
Uh, I thought it was going to end up <laughs> on on a Tuesday night in RTE yeah. too. I didn't yeah. know that the yeah. film was going, and neither did anybody, because maybe we all forget, but at the time, once didn't get as much attention in Ireland as it possibly should have. You know, I remember going along to see it at the time, and, you know, there were no packed-out cinemas. It was only yeah. when it took off in, in the States that it started getting the attention. And uh, even after the film... Things were taken off for, for Glenn, but uh, that was all happening somewhere else. Yeah. And it was only it was only really when once the musical uh, was happening. Oh obviously, you know, the great thing about, you know, Glenn's success was that he never forgot and he went back to the well and his invite for Ferg to come over and support in Radio City was a massive deal and hilarious that Fergus would turn around and bring a band as big as he did and <laughs> for a moment like that because I think Glenn at the time would say it himself he thought that he would come with a quartet and he came with you know a 10 piece band and uh, turned it into an incredible incredible moment for everybody yeah but unfortunately when the when the musical came along and Gold became such a pivotal uh, moment in the musical that won eight Tonys. The disease had progressed to that point that he couldn't actually travel to take advantage of it. And that was the point when uh, it was beginning to get to him because he always allowed the music to, to, even though he was losing abilities all the time, he always allowed the music to keep him going. But to be sitting at a remove and watching, you know, this success happen and not to be able to, you know, build on it was really yeah. tough for him. Yeah. Uh, it's a heartbreaking scene when he's invited by Glenn to play in Cork. And I, you get the sense that maybe he's, he's pushed himself so far and that maybe everyone around him it almost thinks he's, you know, super human because he, he seems to suffer almost in silence. And it's, it's heartbreaking when you see him actually say, no, look, I just, I can't do this. I can't perform. Yeah. That must have been tough for you as well. It was because, apart from anything else, the journey from Dublin to West Cork is not, it's not a short journey. So, there, you know, you would get in a car and you yeah. would go down. And, that, and i got to be really clear about this. It's only when I when when Fergus passed away that I went back to look at that footage, and particularly the footage over the last year. And I don't think I realised how how bad he was. I of course I probably did, but I was probably too terrified to think about it. Um, but he knew, and he was the only one who did know because everyone around him just knew he always got on with it. So. So the fact that he would he would not go on stage was a massive thing for him and for the rest of us it was just um, just a horrible moment where you suddenly realised that this this character who didn't let anything get in the way was suddenly getting stopped in his tracks by by this disgusting disease. Yeah. Um. You managed the archive amazingly. Um, there seems to be you were you seem lucky in a lot of ways uh, that there was a lot of just really great 
footage there, but it must have been a challenge as well to try and wrangle it off. Yeah, yeah, I, very lucky. I mean, you're 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 filming over a period of time, but you know uh, uh, very shortly that it's important that you cover a life here, and that there are moments in this life that you weren't there for. Uh, and then you find all the home movies and you go, this is brilliant. This, this is saying so much, you, you know, you, you know that when you have images like that, you don't need to say as, as much. Um, you know, I, I was saying to somebody the other day, there was, you know, that there was a gentleman called Mark MacDonald who had worked with the band for many years and he had kept loads of uh, material to do with the band in boxes in his attic and we spent three days going through these boxes and on the bottom of one box uh, Aideen and Suri found a blank uh, VHS and uh, when they put it into a machine it was interference playing as schoolboys in the 80s and nobody knew it was there so you got the, these incredible, you know, bits of luck along the way that meant that you were constantly reevaluating what you wanted, what way, or what was going to end up in the final cut. Because you can't tell, you can't tell everything. If you try to tell everything, you're not going to tell anything. So you had to, you had to kind of between myself and, and McMahon, you just had to decide what were those moments that uh, you needed to hone in on and anyone who's ever made a documentary will know that up until a certain point in the edit you're going I've got this all wrong I've got this all wrong this structure is 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 rubbish it's not working and then you turn the corner and you go no actually this is it's going to work and it's going to work that we took out all that archive and we only left this bit in and uh and but it, yeah, it was a great luxury to have it there. But it was it was important not to overdo it as well. Absolutely. Um, what's next for the film, Michael? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's uh, you know, Galway was last year, and Galway was amazing. Uh, the Galway Film Flat was the place. It was the place that I wanted to go with it. Um, yeah, because yeah. they're wonderful people, and I knew what they'd. Uh, I know I knew that once they saw it. Well, they do that with all the films in the festival, obviously. But I knew that they'd give it uh, all all the help they could, and the screening was was incredible. To see people uh, in a cinema uh, yeah. react to all the moments that you hope they'd react to, and then you know the reception afterwards was incredible. So that you walk away from that and like anybody, you're kind of going, what's the best path now? And the path is you want as many people as possible to see the film. So you spend months talking to different people uh, to try and decide what the best way is. Then luckily Element came on board. um, uh, And then you're just waiting and waiting for the right time to release. And then, because the thing is, you could go down different roads. You could go online with this, but I wanted it to have a cinema release because because I think it's a communal experience. I think every filmmaker wants it to be a communal experience, but in particular with this film, 
uh, it's all there are moments in this film where it's like being at a gig. So it's and when you're sitting in a cinema with people and they're reacting to those moments, that's what I really wanted for it. So it was supposed to be in the Doc Fest. And COVID took care of that. Well, before that, it was supposed to get a release. And COVID took care of that in the spring. Yeah, um, yeah. And now it's uh, been pulled out of Indie Cork. And I mean, I hope and pray, like every filmmaker and everybody involved in film and music in this country, uh, that, I mean, it's a bit weird, to be honest with you, that Fergus spent so many years in his own particular lockdown Mm-hmm. and frustrated with uh, not being able to get out there and promote his, his music. And here we are with Breaking Out, and it's, it's in its own personal lockdown. And, <laughs> and he's up there going, for fuck's sake, what is going on? Uh, I, I mean, it's just so weird. But, you know, every day that, you know, you get a little bit low about it, you you have to be reminded. I'm reminded that not just of what everybody's going through in our industry, but um, what he went through as well. And, and, you know, so I think you can plan as much as you like, Paul, but I think it needs a bit of luck. It needs yeah. a lot of luck. <laughs> because yeah. I think, you know, when people see this film, they, they, get, they are affected by it. So I, I still hope and pray it gets to the audience. Yeah. Uh, it, it has to. <laughs> uh, nothing seems to have been easy with this project, but I just hope that people will get to see it, and I, I know people will, will love it. Um, what about yourself? Have you got other projects lined up? or? Well, um, I took two years out to, um, to finish the film, yeah. um, and that, and, and uh, you know, as a filmmaker when you raise a budget you put everything into into what's on screen so so you so i'm lucky enough to be working away at the moment on different projects in in broadcast television and i i have a few things that i'm working on but um i i'm still at the point where i'm trying to make them work enough for me that that uh, i go to the next stage and I suppose it's very, very difficult. Um, I was saying to somebody the other day, I had the pleasure of meeting the makers of Capturing the Freedmans, which is is one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And uh, it, uh, I remember meeting them and say, you know, they were very gracious in asking me about, you know, the film. And I was still in the middle of, of filming and raising funds at that time. And I said, you know, it's 10 years since Capturing the Freedmans, you know, can you leave a film like that behind? And the director said, no, actually, we're in court next week. You know, uh, you don't leave long-term projects behind. You stay with them and you, they become like a family member. So Breaking Out's a family member. And, uh, you know, I still... I think quite often when you finish a project, you can move on to the next one. And, of course, you have to because you have to live. But... I, I made a promise to myself that I would not give up in trying to push this as much as I could to try and get it out there and to try and, you know, get that bit of luck uh, that it needs. Amazing. Amazing. Um, we always kind of end with 
this question. If you could give yourself some advice, the, the, the younger Michael who was starting out on this journey 10 years ago, what might that be? Oh, I would have said to myself on loads of occasions over the years, uh, don't start a project like this without a budget. Don't start a project like this without the backing because it's going to be a long and difficult road otherwise. But actually, at this point, when it, with, with the film that, I, that I've made, you know, I'm glad I didn't stop myself. Yeah. Sometimes some projects, they just, they just need what they need. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> if you manage to finish them without ending up in hospital, you've done well. <laughs> Well, well done. Um, keep us posted on on the release. If there's any anything we can do to help promote it, I'd be encouraging everyone to see it in whatever way they can. Thanks, man. I really appreciate yeah. it. F and I Rap Chat is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and recorded at the podcast studio in Dublin City Centre. Shoutouts to our sponsors, Wildcard Distribution and Film Equipment Store. This episode was produced and edited by Larry McGann. See you next time on Rap Chat. And before we go, here's another show we recommend that is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Phoning It In is back. Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I'm the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. Think Joe Duffy meets your favourite Irish comedians. Our first episode back is already out and features the young hot guys, Tony Cantwell, Shane Dan Byrne and Killian Sunderman. This season we'll also have lots of bonus material available on Headstuff Plus, including new improv-style games with all your favourite guests. Phoning It In is available every fortnight wherever you get your podcasts and on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.